Hello, welcome to the full unedited version. Well, apart from obviously there are some edits because of things that we said which just are not apparently acceptable in any form of human society. But predominantly unedited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. This is another episode we recorded at the Edinburgh Fringe. Our guests are Sophie Hagen and Martin Moore. Just a quick note about this episode. This was the first one we recorded uh, and we had a few issues with the sound in the venue and a sound engineer that wasn't there. Uh, So there's a little bit of static hiss in this. There's a little bit of uh, distortion. It's been cleaned up uh, by our guys, the best as possible uh but we still wanted to put it out because it's a really interesting conversation uh so apologies about that there'll be no charge to patreon supporters uh for this episode completely free for everyone and just before we kick off a quick reminder of a lot of our live events we've got coming up october 2nd at the waterstones gower street robin and josie are going to be in conversation about robin's new book i'm a joke and so are you and then november 1st is the launch of that book uh, at king's place uh, a psychological variety night with some comedy and music and science uh robin's going to be there obviously josie on stage grace petrie uh, philippa perry and some other very special guests yet to be announced October 6th we're at the Ilkley Literature Festival doing Book Shambles Live our guest there will be co-author and co-creator of Ghost Stories and the League of Gentlemen Jeremy Dyson Uh, then with uh, Sophie Scott and Charles Fernyhoe we're going to be at Manchester Science Festival on October 22 for Book Shambles Live Uh, we're at QED conference during the Space Shambles quiz and a book shambles with Sue Nelson and the great Wally Funk don't miss that Uh, basically go to the Cosmic Shambles website check out the events listings lots of stuff on there and all the ticket links Uh, thanks to everyone who took part in our book shambles survey and uh, competition on Twitter this week Make sure you go to the blog network on the site and you can check out the results of that. Uh, People's must-read books that they haven't actually read yet. We did a big poll of people. Uh, No surprise, Ulysses topped that list. And there's also a video on there that we made of Robin. Uh, Robin needs to get rid of a 1,000 or more books from his house because it is going to collapse under the weight of books. So we made a video about Robin trying to get rid of a 1,000 books. So you can check that out on the site as well. And there's a a much extended version uh, available for Patreon supporters as well. So make sure you go onto the Patreon website, log in there and check out the link for that. And that's more than enough from me. Now, uh, here's on to this week's episode. Um, so uh, most of the time when these are, uh, when, we, when we do them, it's Josie and me, but uh, Josie couldn't come up. And today uh, is the first one, and I'm really pleased, but I'll, I'll introduce our first guest, which is, uh, just so you know, so it's basically, it's a podcast, and uh, we're just going to chat about books. That's it. Uh, and thank you very much. I know some of you here were at the Barry Crimmins gig last night. How many of you at the Barry Crimmins gig? Just having just a that was an amazing gig. So one of you, well done. The rest of you now have to leave. You're not allowed treats. Um, the uh, uh, so please welcome to the stage someone who well I really want to talk almost about your last year's show as well and see if we talk about books and that as well because she's uh, uh, a fantastic comedian and she is Sophie Hagen. Sophie, you were at the Barry Crimmins gig. You're allowed to stay. Um, the, uh, also, yesterday, what I thought was fantastic is you, you did a routine where you talked about Swansea. 
yeah. And the way you say Swansea, because you said you hadn't realised what Swansea was actually like, and yeah. I always think of Swansea as not sounding like a particularly like salubrious or wonderful place. But actually, the way you say Swansea, it does sound. It may Swansea be sounds much better, doesn't it? It's just when you don't have the connotations of someone who's uh, lived uh, in the UK for a while. You don't know how it sounds. To you, it just sounds like how you imagine Swansea really is. But when you come from the outside and someone says Swansea, you're like, what a fancy place that must be. Well, it is quite a fancy place. If anyone here is, has anyone here seen the film The Last Seduction? Well, it's quite a big film in the, in the, in the 90s. There was a sequel called Last Seduction 2 with a uh, much lower budget, which is, uh, is that tinnitus or is that, <laughs> no, which one, uh, much lower budget. And uh, in some of that, uh, Swansea is used to double up for New York. And the, the way they make it look like New York is at the beginning of each scene, someone rollerblades down the street. So which is just it's an amazing film. Um, so so the, I wanted to ask, because one of the interesting things that often, happens quite often when we do, we're doing these is when I say to people, do you want to come on? They go, oh, I don't know if I'm clever enough. And of uh -huh. course, first of all, you are. And secondly, like reading, I, I don't think of reading as, it, it's not about cleverness. Whatever. So what was, <laughs> I want to start off by when you were growing up and your last show, which had some incredible things about your childhood and your grandfather. Yes. Um, I saw quite an early stage of that. And, but was reading in any way kind of solace during some of the, the, the was that part? It's funny, like I don't, I didn't remember anything about reading in my childhood. And then recently, because I'm in, I'm in therapy, <laughs> don't worry, I'm fine. Uh, I, uh, I had a weird period of my life a few months ago, and it's lasted for a few months, where I suddenly wanted to read all the things I'd read at a specific period of my life and I wanted to watch what I uh, watched when I was a little child and I wanted to listen to the music I'd listened to. So for two months I was like fully in the culture that I consumed when I was a child and there was one book uh, called Behind the Attic Walls uh, which it was from a, by a woman called um, Sylvia, Sylvia Cassidy and it's funny when I remember reading it. I remember reading it 20 times. I loved this book so much. And when I think back of it, I remembered, oh, right, it's because it was about uh, someone finding a diary that was burned around the edges, and it turned out to be a diary from someone who died. And I was like, that was why I love this book. Then I read it. That was literally four, like four lines was that bit. The whole thing was about, well, guess what? A child who was so much more clever and all the adults <laughs> who had been severely neglected by the system uh, and who then found um, some dolls uh, who were, spoiler alert, uh, who were like alive in the attic. But it's so weird, isn't it? Like I remember that being, oh, it's the horror element, but actually it was just about this little girl that I so saw myself in. So I think I used that quite a lot to uh, deal with the stuff. It's quite. It's, it's sometimes a dangerous thing, is it? When you see, you go, oh, I loved that as a kid. It's like going back and watching TV shows as well, or really good, and you find out, oh no, the child that I was 
my brain as it was was perfect for this show and now the memory has been scorched and I think that's that's the sad thing about YouTube is you can access everything including every single one of the Anglia TV stations logos from its inception to its end that is one of the reasons that I love things like YouTube is someone's gone do you know what there aren't enough different versions of the test card or how Grampian changed its logo and I am the human being to change that but I love that, that you know, those books, because I think the books that kind of gave me solace were generally quite horrible books or not like I, I, I just rebought Shock-Headed Peter, Struel Peter. And I, I, do you know Struel Peter or Struel Peter, which is uh, it's all about things like Johnny Sucker Thumb, little Johnny Sucker Thumb. And he would suck his thumb and his mum told him not to. And then when she went out, he sucked his thumb and the long legged red scissor man came in with his scissors and snick, snack, snick, snack. And then he just standing there weeping, going, I haven't got any thumbs anymore. And his mum goes, no, brother. And I, that, yeah, this is explains so much about this country. By the way, I'm in therapy too. So, uh, and there's Augustus Gloop, Augustus, no, well not Augustus Gloop, Augustus who will not eat, eat his soup. He will not eat his soup and he's having a hissy fit and he gets thinner and thinner and thinner and dies. And the, oh no, the cats don't cry for him. The cats cry for the little girl who plays with matches, stupid little girl, but she loves the flames. Anyway, then the cats cry over her ashes. It's like a training ground. It's a training ground for every Nick Cave fan, right? Basically, when you're six years old and you're not, but those things, and they do still give me that, that kind of Proustian rush of, I mean, in some ways, do you think behind the attic wall that it, it is reading in that time when you're a child and whether you're an outsider child or not, but that it's that moment of going, I have some control over my life when I'm here in this story, because this story doesn't have so many, you know, the, the, the twists of reality. Yeah, I mean, it was a gruesome, uh, it was a gruesome book, but it was also about this girl and she had these imaginary friends and I was like oh yeah <laughs> yeah I did that uh, but not she didn't just have imaginary friends she had imaginary friends who adored her and she would just say like oh you're so dirty and these uh, imaginary friends would go oh yeah we know we just want to be like you and I was like this is so close to home <laughs> this is so much like my childhood of what needing like a boost but then uh, I think it was that disappearing and because of I'm not into any kind of, I'm bad at sci-fi. I'm really bad at things that aren't like realistic. Um, I can't watch, like I can watch like horror films, but if you see the ghost, I'm just done. I just can't do it. Like alien films, I can't do it if you see the alien. It's just a weird thing in my brain. Oh, you know what you do? There's one called, it's, am I right saying the ghost story? Does anyone know about this film? Which is basically, there is just a ghost in a sheet in it. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, and it's uh, and it starts off, it's a lovely kind of, just about a couple. And every now and again, they hear a weird noise in the house. And then he dies. And then there's just a scene where she comes to view his body. And then the sheet's put back over his head. And then when she moves out, suddenly he just stands up, the whole sheet. And the whole film is just this ghost like psychogeography standing i promise you that's one where you see I, I, I don't know if i've sold it that well there's a that basically it's a film in which a man in a sheet stands in the corner of different small rooms of a duplex i hope you enjoy it but um to be fair to be fair if there wasn't a sheet and it was just a man i'd be equally scared i think that's scarier actually yeah i think um but yeah that that that, that it's funny because there, there were dolls coming to life in this one and i've never liked that sort of stuff but i think there was something about the like emotional thing of her escaping into these surreal things, which I've always done. Like I've always spent eighty percent of my uh, uh, waking hour imagining I was somewhere else or that I was someone else. So I think I really looked into this uh, very re real 
horrifying life of this small orphan girl, but then she just did the same as I did, and then I kind of meta disappeared into another world through hers. It's quite interesting when you look back at, uh, like, because I didn't read a lot of children's books, and I didn't watch a lot of children's TV, uh, because <laughs> my mother thought that uh, children's TV was um, childish. <laughs> so she was like, oh, we'll meet in the middle, we'll watch The Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> that's a cartoon. Uh, so I just, like, I think I must have been 12 when I first read uh, Misery, Stephen King's Misery, and um, uh, The Green Mile. Uh, and there was another one. Oh, what's the other guy? The other guy. The other horror. Dean Coons. Oh, uh, I read a ton of Dean Coons. And it was so, I remember it being difficult because it was like bigger words than I should be able to read and also bigger themes. <laughs> but there was a lot of that. So I just think I kind of made myself a bit more adult than I should have been. See, I love things like that. I was talking in the show that I'm doing about horror the other day, I was talking about the fact my, my son, 10 year old, he loves Tales from the Crypt comic books and Tales from the Crypt comic books, which are basically, the, it's normally roughly the same story. <laughs> I'm having an affair and my scientist husband knows nothing about it. Let him continue to work on his dismemberment machine. And of course, you know, it's, uh, and what I love is, you know, sometimes my wife goes, do you think it's okay? I said, yeah, because I was reading those. Well, actually, that's probably a very bad argument. But uh, it's, but I've found that, for instance, you know, one, I, I think he picks up on a lot of things anyway, but two, the use of language, sometimes in horror books. And Stephen King, of course, for years was, was you know, hugely successful, perhaps underrated. And his book on writing, by the way, is a fantastic book, both, and Dance Macabre as well, which is all about, Dance Macabre, all about horror. But there is a wonderful language in turn of phrase, which I, I think, and I noticed, like, in my son's English report, I think some of the ways now that he uses the word garrot have, uh, you know, but it's... And I, I still, I, I feel a lot of those things give children, again, it's, it's some kind of level of freedom. And I, I wanted to know, if, when I was, um, we had a chat when I was, uh, when I was writing my book, and uh, I loved some of the stories you were saying about the fact that you, it seems to me, thinking of, of, of children and young people who may well, you know, not feel that they're in, right in, in the centre of things, those people who feel, and you, there's some amazing, I mean, you, you told me one story about the, uh, the girl who wrote to you because uh, a boy at school had stood up and talked about feminism. Yeah. And I just love the fact that you had quite a few stories, I don't know if you want to explain yeah. that, of, of people who they see your work. And that, that's why I hope you write a book as well. I don't know if you are writing a book. I am. Good. Yeah, I just sent the second draft to my editor. So right now I'm just shitting myself constantly. <laughs> oh, it's the worst, isn't it? Yeah, mine's a year was a year late because I sent the first two hundred thousand words of the hundred twenty thousand word book, and it appears it was more absurdist than it intended to be. It's like if you live in my mind, you could understand it, but it turns out when taken out of my mind, it seemed erratic. Um, so, but yeah. that's yeah. So, so well, first of all, tell me about about the book on the second draft if you're okay. To the book about. is called, um, according to me, it's called Happy Fat. According to my editor, it's called Fat. We're not really in agreement yet. But, um, so let's say it's called Happy Fat. Uh, it's about fatness, and it's kind of part. I don't want. It's when you say it's a memoir. Like I'm 29. It's not a memoir, but it's a memoir about about the like part of my life that has to do with fatness. And then it's like a part, I guess, self help, but hopefully not in a douchey, wishy washy American kind of way. Uh, and then it's just like a like a call to arms in a way against the diet industry against the capitalist system that makes uh, women in particular hate their bodies and make us think that we have to be smaller to have worth. So it's, yeah, it's that. It's not, it's, um, 
uh, my main criticism from my editor of the first draft was uh, I was very angry. Uh, <laughs> one of the chapters started with, um, well, I guess you all want me to mention health, even though it has nothing to do with fatness. Well, I guess here we go. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I can see how that's not the most welcoming. Chapter five, fuck you for reading this book. I'm not entirely sure. Pretty you... much, yeah. But also you have, to, like my, my therapist kept asking me about the book and I kept saying to her, that's not an issue. Like I'm just writing the book. I want to talk about other stuff. She kept asking. And then there came a point when I came to her and I said, oh, I've just been really sad recently. She was like, well, what are you writing? I was like, oh, shut up. It's not about the book. I'm writing about my childhood. She was like, yeah, <laughs> I think it's, it's time to talk about the book. <laughs> and it was. Does that worry you? Because the thing that I find the difference between writing something and performance is when you're doing stand-up, you have total control. Mm. And if you get a sense that an audience is not perceiving you in the way that you'd hoped, you are able to alter that, whatever. And then once you hand it out, I mean, it's like with a lot of stuff that we've talked about this before the show, but with a lot of stuff that's on the internet, part of the problem with it is it becomes part of a Rorschach test. The moment the words... I mean, last night when we were doing the, the Barry Crimmins show, uh, Barry, for those of you who don't know a wonderful uh, a comedian who, who died earlier this year, a fantastic activist comedian who fought a great deal of his life for uh, the bullied, by basically, and the marginalised. And um, Helen, his wife, who, who's over here, and, and she showed this tiny little film of Barry, when he was ill, sitting on a gurney in one of those little kind of tie-up, you know, nightgown things that you wear in hospital, just him going, bye-bye, everyone. Bye. And they just, they played it at the funeral. She said, I don't want to put it on the internet, though, because the moment it goes there, the moment it is on YouTube, something like that, it becomes other people's. In a way that I think, you know, even drama and stuff, that don't, it, there's something about it where, and so do you find in that way that you have found a different turn of phrase, a different way uh, that you go, ah, I have to slightly safeguard this idea in a way that I don't if I'm standing on stage? Yeah, because when I do, when I do a show, the freedom is I can basically say anything I want, and no one's going to say, well, "What's this? What's the study?" You know, because I, and, you know, I can say to an audience, "Oh, the the world is fat phobic," and people will be like, "Yeah, yeah, it is." But when I put that in a book, suddenly, you know, I have to back that up with some kind of evidence, and I don't like that. I don't like that. It's I don't, and it's such a selfish, childish feeling that I'm like. Just trust me on this one. <laughs> They're like, this is a thing. Like, I, I wrote about the, the bias within the medis, uh, medicinal industry and how, um, you know, like doctors are often quite fat phobic and that prohibits a lot of fat people from getting the right care they deserve. And I needed to back that up with so many studies because even though it's a thing that all fat people talk about all the time, this is just like part of our world. It's like, oh, I went to the doctor. He said I needed to lose weight, even though I came there with a broken finger. Um, it's just a thing. And I hate, I hate that part of it. I hate that there will be, that you suddenly need to, and it, it makes sense. Of course, you have to back things up, of course. But I'm like, I'm used to the internet and I can just tweet things. And that's really nice because, you know, that people will still ask me to back things up, but I don't have to do it. But suddenly it's written. So I have to be more open to whoever reads it and also open to the fact that they might read it in 10 years mm. and I that it kind of, I think it just bothers me because we're used to so many people just being able to say things and then it's the whole fake news thing and you can tweet something and then suddenly half the world will believe that that's a true thing um, but that's usually being used against marginalized people 
then when you, as a marginalized person, kind of say something back, and then you still have to have all these sources, and even though science is so flawed in, to begin with, uh, that's, that, that was one of the main annoyances about writing, that I couldn't just say how I felt and have that be a fact. And uh, I'm going to introduce the other guest now. Ladies and please welcome okay. from the back. Uh, someone who I think I've known you 24 years. It might be 23, but I reckon it's 24 years. Uh, he does so many different things that he's done, and I've worked with him all over the place doing different things. And uh, I certainly, from his bookshelf, often found interesting and bizarre things. And that's why I wonder if this. Please welcome uh, Martin Mork. Hello. Hello. Um, Martin, who uh, I first, it was Manchester. I remember we were doing a gig. It was on a Wednesday and uh, Smug Roberts was on as well. And I ended up staying at your place in Levin's Human, just looking at your bookshelves. And your bookshelves were, um, the first thing I remember, because you have a, 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 certainly had, and I think sort of a very interesting, keen interest in what would have then been seen as various different alternative cultures. Uh, both filmically, poetically. Uh, I was going to bring up, first of all, the incredible Manchester magazine, Head Press. Yes, whatever became of that. I it's like a fanzine almost, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, in its day, it covered like all alternative culture. I think now, because we've got um, YouTube, people just Google things, don't they? Those kind of things don't have to exist. This was full of like weird Japanese movies and all that stuff that you love that you pretended wasn't porn. Yeah, yeah. The... Uh... I found my alibi. I'm just very interested in the French vampiric culture. Um, the, and there was, yeah, head, head press was it. And there was a guy who only just very recently died. Um, Adam, no, no Paul Freeman. Uh, Adam, uh, guy wrote Apocalypse Culture. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember that. So what got you into that? I mean, you, you grew up You grew up in, in, in Belfast. No, Coleraine. So oh, Coleraine. I, I grew up in a small market town in Northern Ireland called Coleraine. And it's one of those towns, so it's a market town that doesn't have a market anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's got a sit, uh, town centre that's kind of dead. And um, I couldn't get away quick enough. And when I was about 15, my friend's older sister gave me uh, the first two Ramones albums and a copy of On the Road and a copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and changed my life. And that guy was my friend from school. And this was Joan, his older sister. And I wish I could meet that woman again just to go, everything I am now started at that one point when you gave me that stuff. She, I guess she doesn't know. It's a fear and loathing Las Vegas for a, uh, a, the, the, our generation, I think, was, you know, Hunter S. Thompson. It was, that was an amazing moment because you'd see it on the older sister's or older brother's bookshelf of a friend. And, you, and it had this incredible cover by Ralph Steadman, you know, one of those wonderful, them going through the desert, the start of the hallucination. And you would, you know, those book covers where you just go, what lies within? What is in? And so often you go, Ah, it's rubbish. Uh, like, like the novel Squelch is mm. it's very disappointing about giant killer worms burrowing in people's faces. But the cover looks great. But Hunter S. Thompson's, you know, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. And just at was, that time as well was, uh, was punk rock. So punk rock was happening. And I don't know if you know, but in, like in Northern Ireland, punk was really different because it was the first non-religious thing. Everything else had had a sectarian divide and it didn't have a sectarian divide. So to us, all the... So, in England, punks were rebelling against their teachers and the police. But we were also rebelling against the other authority figures, which was the paramilitaries. So we had all this that brought us together. So there were six of us who were like little punks, swapping little books, and then somebody's cousin would bring a punk fanzine from England, and it would be like this 
treasured thing that got passed around. You know, like remember they used to just photocopy and staple them together. Safing glue, that was uh, yeah. the, what, the one that Danny Baker was. Right. Yeah, it was, it? Yeah. Good. If you, and even if you look back at that now, I think they collected them, didn't they? They, they printed them oh, as a collection, and they're really brilliant. Yeah, really good writing. And then Jojo Smith, so yeah. who you know, so a comedian friend of ours, Jojo Smith. I've known her for twenty years, and about five years ago, she said that she used to write as uh, as gay abandon, and I used to read gay abandon in sounds, and we've known each other eight years. I didn't know it was her. Never knew it was her. There's an interesting thing that I want to bring both of you on this because when you were just mentioning things like the punk scene and sniffing glue and something that I noticed around Edinburgh now, which is there is a point in culture, and I may well be wrong about this, uh, but it's something that Josie also talks about uh, a lot, which is there's a point in the 50s, 60s and 70s where you see a variety of voices. And in terms of the background of those voices, in terms of the class background of those voices, it seems to me to feel as if it was broader than it is now. I mean, when I walk through the now, I don't hear a variety of voices. There's mm. various different, slightly posher versions of my own voice. And you see what I mean? Yeah. Lots of middle-class men like me. And I wonder whether you do feel that at that point, when you, and people like Danny Baker, you know, Danny was, uh, and, and then then before that, oh man, I'm gonna, uh, wonderful writer wrote a book, the beat British writer from Nottingham. See if you can remember him. Oh. Uh, he died about four years yeah. ago. I'm sorry, we'll come back to that. Yeah, this yeah. is normally, Trent, who's at the back, has uh, the internet up, and we look, we pretend like we've got amazing memories, but we haven't. But now I've the truth no is going to be revealed. Uh, he was a great filmmaker and also a, a, one of the, the great battlers for, for gay rights as well. But anyway, so the, there seemed to be a greater variety of voices, and I wonder if you feel that that is no, because they flooded it with data. That's what they've done is they've just flooded us with data. So when when we would get that fanzine that was an alternative voice. That one fanzine went around all the like-minded kids and they all saw that same little message from Danny Baker or whatever, you know, or the Sex Pistols saying you don't have to do what your parents tell you. And all the kids saw that, but now we're completely flooded with data. You can't tell anymore. You don't know anymore what if there's a movement. So whereas when, you know, that thing when you're a kid and you hear a record and you go, gee, somebody else thinks the same lonely thing as me or whatever. Now everyone's fragmented and it's a controlling thing that's to keep us in our places. Yeah, those three channels. So there's still a great a documentary about Polly Starring, uh, just going around with her, you know, this young kid with an incredible, you know, just, just an amazing. Uh, that, yeah, that bit of flooding with information, I think that is, that, that is a slightly, that, does it mean nothing can bloom? Everything gets cut down and turned into something which is uh, for the advertising industry or whatever. Before and maybe it just grow? on a much smaller scale. So like podcasts, in in the past, uh, they weren't that you couldn't get your voice out in the same way. But the people that got their voice out were the exceptional people. So Danny Baker was quite an exceptional kind of guy, isn't he? So he got his voice out there. Now it's all diluted down, and it's just too much of it out there for us to we you can't wade through it all. Sophie, we're old men. As a young person, how, you know, do you, do you how do you feel? Do you have any reflection on, on that? I mean, we're talking about you know going back to the seventies and stuff. Like, well, I mean, he is. I don't remember. I'm only thirty three. Check it, my age. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's difficult because I'm 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 not just um, it's like I also come from a different country. So the things I heard back, I can't really compare. You know what I what what my teen years was in Denmark compared to what it is now here because I'm not really sure what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, back in Denmark right now, but I feel like within, like when I look at my bookshelf now and comparing that to what I read 10 years ago and what were like the, the main books to read, uh, like right now I'm, I'm really just happy with how many uh, um, like books have come out that are more mainstream that are by, for example, black women, like uh, why I no longer talk to white people about race by Rennie at a large and 
uh, Sonia Renee Taylor, Your Body's Not an Apology, and Chidera Ekaru, uh, How to Be Alone. And I'm just, I'm, I think there's hap something's happening now where we've kind of pushed enough that marginalized voices are coming, either coming forward for the first time or coming back, depending on uh, what you're used to. And I mean, that, that makes me really happy. Someone like um, Rennie Edolage, who has won so many awards for that book, and it's just gone amazingly. Yeah, she was going to be able to do book shambles, but then she won loads of awards, and it turns yeah, out she's too busy. Yes, you can try to do my podcast as well. Drop that. Because there's that thing as well, but isn't it that I suppose now that a young, say, a young person or any person could look and find the voice that they need to hear. Like, so I, I saw a thing on TV where there was a guy, and his sexual preference was to dress up as a furry animal. And he thought he was the only person in the world that liked this idea, dressing up as a furry animal. And then the internet happens, and now they have conventions where people that are into that meet up, dress up as furry animals, and have sex, or whatever they do. It's hard to work out who the mascot is then, though, isn't it? I yeah, the mascot's the guy yeah. not dressed up. <laughs> can I, can I, I, just, I discovered a thing that I didn't know was a thing. Um, dinosaur porn. No. Did you know that was a thing? No. It's not just like an internet thing. Like people like publish books now, and it's just it's like erotica, written erotica, where people have sex with dinosaurs. It's incredible. It is the most wonderful thing I've like. The descriptions of the book is wonderful. The excerpts and the comments on Amazon. It's so. It's and it's a huge. Huge so who are the sexiest dinosaurs? I mean, obviously, from a scientific perspective, I don't, much like One Million Years BC with Raquel Welsh, I don't like the idea of humans and dinosaurs coexisting, and I believe that's going to mislead children who merely want to masturbate on Tyrannosaurus rexes. But the T-Rexes uh, do have very small hands compared to the rest of them, so that might be an advantage. Oh, I see. What's the one with the one massive claw? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's the one, though. Yeah. So, so this is... So what's the basic gist? Well, the one I, uh, I recently let's say examined was uh, <laughs> was one i mean this was probably a bit out well i don't know how normal this is but it was um, a man who uh, uh got superpowers and he could turn himself into a helicopter uh, and then the helicopter then had sex with a stegosaurus and they described how he like would um like i don't know what to call it turn on the propellers propellers yeah. to like make a move uh, and would then like crawl, I don't know how, slide into the bed with the Stegosaurus, and then stuff happened. Wow. So this is like kind of sexy Transformers, basically. Yeah. This is real. Wow. It's definitely sexy. We well, you're going to be might... busy this evening, aren't you, everyone? The, uh, <laughs> this might be the point where we peak as a species. <laughs> Everything else might yeah. go into decline <laughs> from here on. But that just makes me so happy how many people have had that thought, and then thought, oh, I mean, I must be the only one. Yeah. And then now there are books being sold that people pop like not because like I was massively into fan fiction uh, about boy bands when I was younger, but like I never could never imagine that being published. And now we have dinosaur porn published. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it worries me because the Natural History Museum in London has late nights, so I'm just like get down from there. <laughs> the um. So what else, on your, in terms of, so, Andres Thompson, Jack Carrick, where, from there, I mean, you ended up working kind of, whilst you were, I can't remember the place, it's, 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 a, it's an art, art centre, art theatre now, isn't it? Uh, the, uh, where, which used oh, to the be Crescent. the place where you kind of, yeah, where you, you yeah. were kind of squatting pretty much then, weren't you? And so just, we squatted yeah. a, um, we were all quite young, and we squatted a disused building that didn't have any f floors, and it was in a really bad state, 
and we discovered that it was owned by the railways, the Northern Irish Railways, and we were a circus group. So when you're a circus group and you've got like stilt walkers, it's quite easy to embarrass authority figures. It's quite easy to turn up with a banner and, and tell people this building shouldn't be in disrepair. And basically it turned into an art centre. It's an art centre to this day. Yeah, I can't actually get a gig in it. <laughs> so when did you things I mean one of the things I particularly remember was you you were very interested in Charles Bukowski and the and and again you mentioned on the road but you know the beat scene magazine mm -hmm. all of those things what drew you to again what was that because that's that's writing about a culture that for some ways you're quite specific some of it to post-war those who fought in a war, those who were then trying to rebuild what they thought might be might be the world. And you've got on one side, you've got someone like William Burroughs, who I think almost doesn't fit in. You know, mm. William Burroughs in, in the UK, J.G. Ballard, kind of that links up. The other side, you've got Kerouac. Interesting uh, with Burroughs, but they, um, I only heard this after um, when he died recently, um, when Bowie died, that one of Bowie's techniques was he would put lots of um, different things that were unconnected on the floor on like post-its. And he would shuffle them. He'd like the cut-up system that Burroughs used to do. And he, he would randomly get them and like put them together. And like, if you think of a song like um, uh, he, he came from, well, I can't think of a lyric now that I've thought of a Bowie one. I think a Bowie lyric where the lyrics seemed to be really random. I think they were. They were really random. And he did the same cut-up system. Yeah, yeah. Let me think of it. The, um, so... As you moved, when you started to, to be a performer, did that mm. also change? Especially like when you went from being outside to in, because you know you spent a lot of time as a, as a street performer, and then you you started working more. I mean, I, I've seen some of your work where you, you you created that where you're just sitting behind a desk and you had you created that cigarette which just kind of burned straight through. And thing. You know, when you were then seeing about how you can connect what you were seeing artistically with also how you can turn it into performance, were there particular authors and writers that uh, influenced you there? Yeah, I guess it's that thing, isn't it? So I was in, I ended up in Manchester and there was a really thriving scene in Manchester. And as you remember, there was the Cornhouse Cinema, it was like an art cinema that was that had really unusual things that were on. Yeah. Really, you would go, I would just turn up and go and see something. And uh, whatever was on at two o'clock, let's go and see that. And you'd see some crazy film that you had no idea existed. And there was just a really thriving scene. It was kind of, it was just before the Manchester dance music came and killed the creativity because everybody went into drugs. There was still that kind of Joy Division factory. You can just get up and do something. Places like the Hacienda let us just do shows. Oh, in fact, you and I did a show yeah. where um, uh, I forgot all about this. So I was, um, there was a gay and lesbian night called Flesh. It was a massive gay and lesbian rave night in the Hacienda nightclub in Manchester. And I used to supply stilt walkers and they'd be dressed like disco divas and stuff. And this particular night, they'd specifically picked me to do, I had a bed of nails, fire juggling type act. And my bed of nails partner wasn't around, but Robin was. So Robin, if I remember, you were wearing your own uh, purple velvet suit. Yeah. And a gimp mask. Yeah. A gimp mask that I've provided yeah, you with. Yeah. And Robin's main job was, I don't know if you've seen a bed of nails performer, but the difficult bit it's just the bit where you stand up, just the last bit where you're on the littlest amount of nails. And Robin, instead of helping me up, accidentally stood on me. Yeah. And then just kind of dragged you across the Dragged me off, yeah. 
and they loved it. Yeah, well, it, was, so, it, it very much changed the yeah. scene. I at, felt at, at that scene at that at that club, there was a lot of it was a, it was a great night. It was a really big um, gay and lesbian night in Manchester, and it would have a lot of S and M guys. And uh, for the listeners, I'm a yeah, reasonably big guy with tattoos and a, a quite a big beard. And I would bet of Neil's like, do you have your shirt off and stuff? So I'd always have kind of S&M guys that would follow me around and they would kind of, can I buy you a drink, sir? And this was the kind of thing that they liked. And I was always, um, you know, I'm in a relationship. Can you, would you go away? And at one point I kind of lost my temper with a guy and I went, mate, would you just go away? And uh, I said to my, my gay mate, I said, uh, oh, look, I felt really bad. And he went, no, 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 he would have loved that. <laughs> So who is who you who do you read now? So uh, now I realise. So I've only recently been diagnosed with ADHD. So I can only I'm only now reading in very small chunks, and I totally can't read fiction anymore. I never read fiction anymore, and I'm tending to read things about environmental issues. That seems to be my interest at the moment. Um, I recently read. I had a great experience recently with a book by George Monbiot. Do you know this writer, George Monbiot? He wrote a book called Feral. And basically, he's saying that we should let wild places go back to be really wild. He's describing it as rewilding. And so what we do is, I, I do a bit of volunteering for the RSPB because I'm a bird watcher. And um, as part of that, I noticed that the, the way a nature reserve is maintained in the UK tends to be maintained as farmland from 150 years ago, not as wild land. It should be oak forest. You know, it should be just let to go wild. So George Monbiot's book is a really great book if you get a chance called Feral. It's about rewilding. So I'm still really close friends with my first ever girlfriend. And I bought her as a birthday present about a year ago. I bought her a copy of Feral. She, she'll love it. It never turned up. I, I sent it to her. It never turned up. Then ages later, it turned out that the postman had put it behind her bin it had been rained on and worms had eaten it. <laughs> a tiny rewilding. <laughs> he is great. I remember the first book of his, uh, I remember, I think it was just essays, and the things that you find out that he unearthed, like, you know, I think the British generally like to think of themselves, well, we, we did have an empire, but we generally went to be kind. Mm. And some of the stuff he wrote about, for instance, the way we treated India, where there were the incredible, there's this story about the fact there was um, uh, non, was, you were punished. During one of the uh, times where uh, there was a famine, uh, because everything is, as you know, you know, of course, you know, the, the, throughout our history, very often we just go, well, we own this country, so we're going to take all their food away because we're very peckish where we are. And there was actually, you could be punished uh, by death if you gave food to people who were starving to death. And it was like yeah. one of those moments where you go, I'm going to get rid of my pith helmet. You know, it's just kind of, it's a fascinating thing that, yeah. that he, he unearthed so many uncomfortable truths, which of course then so many people will try. there's been all that, hasn't there, about recently when, I guess, Brexit and stuff, and let's go back to when Britain was great and people harking back to empire. Oh yeah, well it's great if you don't look at what you're doing to other people and other other cultures. Yeah, and quite a few. Yeah, and if you enjoy living in a chimney, the um, Sophie, do you have anyone that you particularly, uh, you know, that you turn to, whether it's a journalist or an author, where you think, right, this person, every time I read their work, I know that I leave it, and I go, ah, the world looks different today. Um, yeah, it, I think. They haven't written much, but uh, Jess Baker wrote um, uh, Things That No One Will Tell Fat Girls, Things No One Will Tell Fat People, which is just like an amazing book about fatness as well. And it's 
whenever I feel a bit doubtful about my body image and all of that, I read, <clears throat> I, I try to read her books. She just came out with a new one called Land Whale, which I'm not allowing myself to read until I've written mine. <laughs> no one can tell me that I've stolen anything. Uh, she's amazing. But at the moment, I'm trying to read more academic stuff. So I'm writing, uh, I'm reading, um, Charlotte Cooper wrote a book about the history of fat activism, which is amazing because people have this, like the general public are now aware of body positivity. And we kind of tend to think that that's the beginning of it. Like it's, we see like a Dove commercial for real women with real curves. And then it's like these size 12 women dancing and they're all white. Um, but actually fat activism started in the sixties by queer uh, Jewish and black women. Uh, they had a fat inn, they called it in the Central Park in New York, where 500 fat people got together and ate ice cream and burned diet books. Amazing. And I want to start that. Every Sunday we meet up. <laughs> so I'm reading that at the moment and I'm trying to get really into um, stuff about the brain. And you, I really actually want your help on this because I need to find more books about it. So I'm reading, is it Oliver Sacks? Yeah, Oliver Sacks. Such humanity. You must have yeah. ever read yeah. that, You know, when you just go, that everything he writes, and having spoken to people who knew, because you know, sometimes you go, I read this book by this wonderful, humane person. Oh, you're right, fucker in real life. And in fact, <laughs> and there are a few, you know, in the science world, there are a few people that I really kind of revered and then found out. But, but with Oliver Sacks, everyone like, it just. All the time. The, have you read the one where um, I, it might even have been the, like the, you know the, the first really famous work, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, where one of his greatest regrets was there was a guy who, due to a brain injury, still believed he was about twenty-two years old, and maybe it was, he was he'd been a sailor. I know guys like that, and he was actually about <laughs> yeah yeah during this festival. Uh, the, uh, but uh, there was a and he was actually sixty, and Oliver Sacks one day decided to find out what would happen if he showed him his reflection. Wow. And he said it was just such a, and he he looked back and he thought, why did I think that was the right thing to do? Mm. And and you read that, that that another author who's been on Bookshambles. And I wish I'd get him along to this actually. He's the former um, Bishop of Edinburgh, Richard Holloway. He's a similar person where you just read their work and you go, ah, oh, the humanity and the love yeah. is on every page. I'm Sorry, no, 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 absolutely. Him and uh, Dean Dean Burnett. Oh, Dean, he's up here at the moment. I know, actually, yeah. no, I want to try and. Uh, you've mentioned quite a few people, so, so I want to. In terms of fiction, do you have time for that, or are you at the moment so immersed in in trying to understand the brain and, and our nature culturally? I do, I'm going to sound like such a twat, like because I'm really in. It's it's just a weird. The Mark, Mark Watson was also doing the gig yesterday. Uh, it's just an amazing author, and I'm. I hope he never listens to this. Uh, I've been very proud of how I've read all of his books. And then he was referencing one of them the other day, saying, oh, like, it's like the one with the therapist. And I was like, shit, I never read the one with the therapist. So now I'm reading the final of his books that I haven't read yet, because I just, I love his, I just love his books. It's just nice. But it's nice also where there's nothing embarrassing about, I found that with age, that just that moment of telling someone, you're like one of my favourite comics is a guy, if you've not seen him, I highly recommend it, Gavin Webster, who is just, he's on at the stand too, and he's a remarkable comedian, and he's also, again, we can almost go back to the class thing here, but we haven't got time, a lot of his shows, which are big and shouty and weird and involving, all manner, they are also incredibly sharp, incisive looks at the nature of class, but because he doesn't actually say, and now I'm looking at the nature of class, <laughs> 
the TV and so much of the mass media, well, he should be given an enormous amount of money to go, right, here's a load of cash, go and make five documentaries about class and culture and art. But it's not, and, and I now, and I love embarrassing him when, it, before I've even had a drink, I say, so you can't even say it because I'm drunk, you're fucking amazing. Anyway, so um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much for your five-star reviews and comments on Twitter and sharing the episodes. Uh, If you're not doing that and you are listening, you should do one of them. That really helps us out, uh, making all the stuff we do uh, and keeping Book Shambles going and the blog network and everything else. So thank you very much for your support. We will be back next week with another new episode. Uh, Not sure who it's going to be yet. We're recording some new episodes this week, so it might be one of those. It might be another from the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, You'll just have to wait and see. Have a great week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.